0: Hey everyone, just wanted to let you know that if you like Danger Close, be sure to follow at This Is Ironclad on Instagram, YouTube, and all major platforms. They're the team that produces Danger Close and all of the trailers for the Terminal List novels. They also produce and distribute more great content like Change Agents with Andy Stump, which I executive produce, Oil and Whiskey with Roadster Shop, which features guests including Joe Rogan, Jesse James, and others. And the behind the scene filmmaking series, Into the Fray, and a bunch more. Into the Fray recently broke down the making of the trailer for my latest novel, Only the Dead, starring my friend and teammate, Dom Rasso, as James Reese. Remember, that's at This Is Ironclad on YouTube and Instagram. This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My novel, Only the Dead, is on shelves right now. Today's guest, Joshua Hood. He's a veteran of the 82nd Airborne and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He is also a SWAT team officer and the author of multiple novels. His latest, The Guardian, is out now. And now, without further ado, Joshua Hood. Oh, man. Awesome. Glad we made it happen. And it seems like we have a good connection and everything. So uh, the storms have subsided a little bit here in Park City. So uh, that, that helps with the with the
1: connection, which is great. You're fresh from uh, Hawaii. Fresh
0: from Hawaii. Yes. Uh, took the little one out there for his first time going to see Punchbowl National Cemetery and going to Pearl Harbor to see uh, obviously the Arizona Memorial and then uh, USS Missouri parked over parked moored over on the other side right there so you see the the beginning of World War II and then the end where the Japanese surrendered on the decks of the Missouri and then they literally liked, the kids uh, liked going through the Bofin submarine so there's a World War II submarine that's uh that's docked there too and you can go through that thing and it's uh it's pretty wild to think uh, how long those guys spent on that thing in World War II it's just tiny and there's very few guys were on it actually it seemed like
1: yeah, that, that's like almost become like a familial, pimp, like pilgrimage. You've taken all the kids there. Yeah. Is there a certain age that you wait or?
0: Well, I went when I was nine. My parents took me when I was nine. Cause my grandfather's name's on the MIA wall up there at Punch Bowl, oh. And uh, so I went there when I was nine. I have pictures of that. Uh, my daughter was older, so she was 16 when we went and took uh, those World War II veterans back for the 80th anniversary commemoration events. this was awesome. Yeah, it was life-changing for her, um, for sure. Now she has like 82nd Airborne Flags in her, uh, and 101st Airborne Flags and stuff in her room. Because uh, she's uh, spent so much time with these guys now doing that. And yeah. then going to Normandy in uh, in the following June and taking those guys. I mean, she was standing on the beach at Normandy with someone who's in the first wave. Dude. Uh, mm.
1: Incredible. Incredible. I mean... Yeah, we used to, when I was at the 82nd, we would have All-American Week, and so all the old-timers would come back and, you know, you do a run, like, it's a whole week, uh, and it's just kind of like honoring them, honoring the heritage, and um, it was kind of weird. Uh, Yesterday, I I guess I've been just tuned out, but they're changing the names of all these posts, and so, like, Fort Bragg, I guess, is going to be, like, Fort Liberty or something, and that that was just weird, but thinking back to talking to those guys, they're like, oh, man, you've know they were always so humble they would like try to pump us up and i was a brand new like e4 like a nobody and um you know one of these guys is talking about like uh all that we were doing in the war on terror etc and and he's wearing like you know he's just a sports coat but he's got his jump wings on there with the flash he's got three mustard stains three combat jumps i'm like dude Like I've always been a history, like a buff. I knew I was going to be in the military when I was young. So like, you know, I've read all the books, night drop everything. And I'm like, I'm talking to a legend, you know, I'm like, how can you, you know, say that, but they really don't, I don't think they understand. Maybe they do, but like the gravity of what they did. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I get it. it. It's just amazing. Yeah. They're so humble. uh, All the ones that, uh, that We have to spend time with over the last couple of years, but I wonder how many practice jumps that, uh, that he did before he did those three combat jumps it was like five. And then, so he, he has eight he actually total. Made
1: a joke about that. That's what started it. I think now that you say it, uh, he's like, how many jumps do you have? And I was like, you know, I think we do like four or five at jump school. But by then I had like 10 or 12 and he's like, I think he said I had seven. He's like, I only had right. seven. And that's when I looked down at his mustard stain. I'm like, yeah, but three of those were combat <laughs> jumps, bro. And he's that's like, amazing. oh, you know. And I'm like, oh, uh, like seven jumps and three of those. Like, yeah. Yeah. Jump school. Let's go. Let's go to Italy and jump in there. And then let's, uh, you know, so it's just because he was in. uh I think it was it Anzio maybe. Yeah. And then, uh, he jumped into Normandy and then he jumped into market garden. Yeah.
0: Oh man. That's so wild. And so many of those guys did that. They're like, yeah, I got uh, six jumps, seven jumps, eight jumps. And yeah, three of those were, were combat jumps and in, in world war two, it's amazing, man. What was your path into in 82nd airborne? Did you know you were going to go into the military for, like from the time you were a little kid and uh, what, what was your path in?
1: I, I did. Um, you know, my mom was one of those, you're going to college. Right. And so, um, we grew up poor, blessed in that I went to like a private school on scholarship. So went to this real rich school and we were like, you know, the poor kids, but it was a, a college prep school. So, so to them, like going into the military, like, you know, this is graduating high school in 98. So that was like, kind of like you wanted to be a garbage man. And it, it was really weird. Cause my dad was in Vietnam. His dad was in World war two and stuff. And oh wow. what did they do in world
0: war two in Vietnam?
1: Uh, well, my grandfather was a uh, test pilot and, oh. um, he began to do the first night fighter stuff. And, um, he would test the, um, the German, uh, like planes that they brought back. And, um, he wanted to fly in combat really bad, but he had learned so much, especially that's when night fighting, I guess, was becoming like a thing that they're like, dude, we're not, you can't do that. Uh, we're not letting you go. So um, he kept putting in applications after applications and they, they said like, it's not happening. We'll send you to Guam. So they sent him to Guam and, but that really bothered him. And so he came back and he was like, I'm going to get out. And then instead of that, they said, look, you're a pretty smart guy. We want to send you to Harvard Business School. And the goal was, I don't know how he really got into it, but he took over the, he was one of the lead guys on the Minuteman missile system and the Polaris that came out of submarines. So he went um, to Harvard and then came back. And then after that, he, I think he retired as a Lieutenant Colonel. Then he went and worked for Raytheon And then, um, so my dad grew up in the military, you know, going from base to base and he got out of high school and enlisted in the Navy and, um, went, did two tours in Vietnam. He worked on a carrier or something with, uh, like bombers. I don't really understand, but he, he would tell these stories about, uh, them loading the agent orange onto these bombers and they would be leaking and they would hit the deck and burn holes. He was in, on a carrier called the Ticonderoga, which was like an old World War II carrier. So oh. it was uh, I guess a lot different than the way it is now.
0: That is crazy. Those leaking bombs.
1: Man. Yeah, the and I'm guessing he the ended safety up getting yeah. cancer from it. <laughs> what? And oh, uh man. yeah, but it it worked out that I mean Gosh. it was uh, everything fixed, but it, it was uh I was like, nobody was kind of like, Hey, this is probably not safe. And he's like, Oh, that's not how the navy was back in the day. Master Chief told you to load something, you load something. Wow. I was like, okay.
0: Yeah. A little little different.
1: Yeah. A little different back then. A lot different. I'm
0: sure they weren't, uh, yeah. I'm sure they weren't in the proper, what is it, what PPE, whatever, personal protective equipment. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm sure they were not in that. I was just like bare hands loading that stuff probably uh, back in the day, I'm sure. Oh, man. That is wild. What did he do when he got back from uh, Vietnam or from his time in the Navy?
1: Uh, He went, he became a hard hat diver. He went to Galveston. Okay. Uh, It's kind of funny my dad and I shared this common thread. Like he ended up being a graphic artist, Whoa. but growing up in this masculine culture, like his dad basically told him like being an artist is not what yeah. men do. And so he kind of spent his formative years uh, in the Navy. He enlisted at 17, did his tours, two tours, got out, went and became a hard hat diver uh, wow. in Texas. So he like worked on oil rigs and I guess he like, somewhere during that time, he's like, I've earned my man card. Then he uses GI Bill to go to, uh, what do they call it? Art school. It's, uh, you know, like a college, uh, Memphis College of Fine Art. Went okay. there and um, kind of spent the rest of his uh, life as a graphic artist.
0: No kidding. That is why What did he do? Who did he work for? Was he on his own or did he work for somebody?
1: No, he worked for some companies here in Memphis um, where I'm from. Uh, some, I don't know. They were like, the modern precursors of mad men. So they're advertising agencies. He did a lot of stuff with FedEx and uh, things like that. But what was crazy is growing up, he he spent a small period of time working um, for himself. He started own business doing the thing. And back then they didn't have like computers. So when I was little, I remember watching him, you know, they would have like, Hey, you're going to make an ad. And literally he would sit there and he'd just make it like, you know, he'd get the, board and sit there and draw and then for type he would literally cut out these little stencils of type and put it on there then he would take me to the printers and um like my mom would get pissed because they use um ether in the printing because they would make a they would take this image they would actually like make uh it's not called a stencil but it's like basically a metal stencil and then they would run it through these awesome printers but the Cut the ink. They would use ether. So I'd sit there, be getting all high, and
0: uh, but it was
1: cool to me because downstairs was this old army navy surplus. So I'd always, you know, kind of go with them, and afterwards get to go in there and like check out all the cool stuff.
0: Oh yeah, army navy surplus stores as a kid were they were just so much fun, so cool. I mean, just like an ammo can and some camo netting. You know, it's like whoa, yeah. And then the stuff behind the glass, like the knives that were three hundred dollars, you know, like it's like wow, three hundred dollars. You know, like that was big money. Might as well been 10 million, you know, and you can see that stuff behind the counter there. Or look at sometimes maybe some paintball stuff over there. Like, what's that? That's amazing. Like that was just so cool to run around those stores as a, as a kid and check out all those ammo cans. And sometimes they'd have like a, a Jeep or something kind of parked, you know, like the owner would have one or something like that. Maybe it was for sale, maybe not. But uh, or, or some sort of a uh, the truck, you know, just camoed out. You know, just sitting there. I love those stores as a kid. So awesome.
1: I love that smell, it's like yeah, that the smell. smell and the smell of like a bookstore, yeah, too, like uh, and I would go in there, and I remember, like you said, I got like a little ammo can one day to put my like cars in, and then one of the marine just o d like the hats they had, you know they and we'd have our patrol caps in the army, but the marines, and you guys use them too, they had that specific looking, and I thought that thing was so legit, yeah. the guy had a 30 cal machine gun. It was like this oversized machine gun. And I guess it was maybe used as like a training aid.
0: Yeah.
1: But I was always like, can I buy that? He'd be like, no, that's, that's not for sale <laughs> guys back there smoking Marlboro yeah. reds. That's you're not great. for sale. And I was like, but it's in here. And he's like, well, if it was, you couldn't afford it. But, um, oh, man, yeah. you know, those things kind of like, if you grow up hearing about the military, hearing a little bit about Vietnam, you kind of mm-hmm. get there, you're touching it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it kind of becomes almost like a mythology or whatever and you want yeah. to go do that
0: yeah so did you listen to your mom go to school first or did you go right in
1: i did um i went to college and i was in college when september 11th happened and uh i was re- working at ups throwing boxes and i saw it on the tv and then i watched like operation anaconda and i'm like mom like i've you know please and she's like hell no you got you want to go graduate earlier. And huh. so, um, started going to summer school and everything. Got out, uh, went to see before I uh, graduated, I went to see like a recruiter. Yeah. And they're like, you could be an officer, but back they couldn't guarantee you a spot. And I was like, I want to go airborne infantry. And they're like, well, as an officer, it doesn't work that way. I was like, well, sh- screw it. I'll enlist. And so, um, that was like in, I did, I graduated December of 03. And at that same time, my brother had just finished high school and um, he did not listen to my mother and enlisted uh, in the infantry. And so he shipped out to boot camp and um, I think it was like April of 2004, I went to boot camp and by then he was in Iraq. And so he's sending me these letters from Mosul and stuff. uh, And I'm sitting there like, you know, the older brother supposed to be kind of leading the way like. Yeah. making sure my bed's made and reading about like this firefight. Yeah. I'm like, man, this is, uh, oh, you know, but, um, he was up
0: there in, in, uh, in Oh four in Missoula.
1: Yep. Oh four through five. And then, um, he came back a little bit and then he went back during the surge, spent 15 months in Mosul. And then they ended up going down to uh Sadr city and mm. spent, um, so while I was in Afghanistan, he was in Sodder city and my mom was, uh, yeah, her nerves were frayed. I bet. I bet not, not thrilled with that. I'm sure not happy.
0: Oh man. Well, I probably crossed paths with him or at least we've walked the same ground in Missoula in 2004. Then I was up there then. But, uh, so what was, how was, uh, how was boot camp?
1: really wasn't that bad? I mean, I was older than most of the guys, yeah. you know, cause I think at that time I was like 22 You're The 80. old man. Yeah, I was. And, um, like the biggest thing for me was the realization that, you know, like you get there and the drill instructors are going off. And I'm like, they would do something, get mad. at And I'm like, these dudes don't know who I am, <laughs> you know, but the other guys, they don't realize that they think they take everything personal and, uh-huh. you know, it's whatever. And I'm like, these guys have no idea like who I am. This isn't personal. They're yeah. just playing this game. And so yeah. um, the only bad thing that happened at, basic training in the army they used to have if you signed up for infantry you could pick your job so you could mm. be like an 11 bravo a rifleman 11 charlie uh, i think there was like 11 hotel which mm. is like a a, ta- a tow gunner or something and mm. then there was something else and they changed that around that time and so you became an 11 x-ray and so um, i w- didn't really know what a mortar was and then uh i started looking into it and i was like damn dude i don't want that job is there any way that i can make sure to get a Lev bravo they're like no but there's a small chance you'll get that and I, I go to basic and like i think it was like the first couple of days or maybe a week we were there they start handing out jobs and it was uh. like they call my name and they're like you and these other dudes are levin charlie's i'm like oh shit uh and i was like how do you you know so i go to the drill sergeant and you're not supposed to talk to him and i'm like excuse me drill sergeant uh I can't be an eleven, Charlie. I got to be an eleven, Bravo. That's what I signed up for. Eleven Bravos are awesome. I don't want to do anything with the mortar. And he, This dude's this big Samoa, and he's like, "Listen, you bastard, I'm an eleven, Charlie." And I'm like, "Oh God, dang man. it!" So he's like, "I don't ever want to hear that again." So uh, it was one of those that's stories. always how it goes,
0: you know. That was there. That was inevitable, right there. He was going to be the exact thing that you didn't want to be.
1: I had to take my shot though. And, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, man. He turned out to be cool. He was in uh, Anaconda. Got messed oh, up. Um, his leg did and never really enjoyed being a mortar, but it was like one of those things where you're like, I'm not gonna, the big army doesn't really care what I want.
0: That's right. That's right. <laughs> Needs of the army. That's right. They're on. not as concerned yeah. what's going on with Josh Hood, what Josh Hood wants. Uh, yeah. What, uh, so what did you do from boot camp? Do you go to, do you, you go to the end of that special the MOS school or how does that,
1: uh, the way it is in it, it was, is, uh, it's all one thing. So in the rest of, uh, Think of the navy, they have what are called a schools, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, so we have that's called ait advanced individual infantry training, training. Yeah. for infantry. It's just all one thing, you don't go anywhere, you don't stop. It's just like, hey, you're an ait, and you're like, I'm doing the exact same stuff. And towards the very end, you have a couple weeks.
0: Are you still getting yelled at on. making your bed doing the same thing, like living in barracks and doing the whole deal? Yeah.
1: Still the same thing. Uh, it was, uh, I was actually telling my wife, um in the basic, how we'd make our beds and then you'd sleep on top of the bed. So you wouldn't have to make it when you woke up.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Just, just just kind of need it up a little bit. Just a little adjustment. Yeah. Just pull it
1: tight. I haven't thought about Um, that in
0: a long time. I try to blank out all those things that were just, pretty much useless i mean i understand obviously why you have to do it now we all anyway but uh so boot camp and ocs were pretty much the exact same thing just getting yelled at like in the navy boot camp you get yelled at by navy people in navy ocs you get yelled at by marine drill instructors so you just get yelled at louder i guess um but so yeah i I block those parts of my life out totally i never think about them unless it comes up in a in a conversation
1: (laughs) it's weird this just comes up you know little things come up kind of like you talking about um Going to Pearl Harbor, you know, those little drops of oil still coming up. Yeah. And you don't think about it. And we were literally, I was helping her make the bed and I was just, I can't remember what we were talking about.
0: So hold on. We're going to edit this part out in case my wife listens. You help make the bed? Uh, yeah. Edit this so out, make a note. Yeah, just yeah. kidding. Just kidding. Man,
1: that's No, good. I wasn't. It wasn't like I was Like <laughs> Help me make the bed. And I'm like, hey, I'm a part right, of I relationship. It. I can make a bed. And, um, you know, uh, so I'm helping do that thing. I do not. And this is terrible. I should, should be better at this. After all the bed making I've done in my life, I refuse to make a bed in the morning. Me too. I don't do it. I don't do it. I'm like, whatever. Like, you know, I know Admiral McRaven says that that's like the part of your day, but I'm like, my nope, bed can suck doing it. it.
0: Yeah. I'm not doing it either. I've no only times i made my bed were boot camp it and, uh, and at OCS. It's just, uh, yeah I, I, I gotta get on with the day I got things to do it's gotta gotta go yeah
1: i don't have time that bed's you know it's served its purpose it's yeah it's good money. i'm gonna get my right back in it later it, but yeah she yeah she, i'm my, like my wife the likes way to it, make is it is too. it's ready <laughs>
0: uh, i saw something on uh, it was like bamble on b or something like that and it was uh it was one of those things where like uh husband mentions that the toothpaste tube is out and magically one appears the next day <laughs> i was like yeah yeah that, that tends to happen around around here as well but uh so well, what happens like equal then
1: division of labor you know yeah 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 like, I think yeah, that, yeah. like awesome you know you got this whole got this world this nation trying to pull everybody apart you know and like all this bs and it's like my wife enjoys when i pump the gas for her. Yeah, she yeah. don't want to pump gas you oh, know yeah. and i, like, I, and I enjoy it's... when she yeah. makes the bed and she's awesome at getting toothpaste when i would probably forget and be like do you have any baking soda and it's like i don't think there's anything wrong with that
0: josh you're gonna get canceled this is very uh you know incendiary conversation right here
1: well you know i don't think i would make me personally would make such a blip but it's like <laughs> if i was a woman like i teach my daughter all the time it's a man's job to treat you well like why would you not expect someone to do that yeah
0: that's no, a good so, example to for, for kids to see, for sure. Um, that stays with them. Uh, so what did you do? When did you learn how to how do you, uh, drop that mortar?
1: Uh, it was like the last two weeks of uh, basic, and it really wasn't, they showed you how to set it up, and it was a lot of running. Uh, if you didn't get it set up in time, you would like, you know, have to grab it, and they'd say to the, you'd run to the wood line, and a lot of ruck marching with mortar rounds just to basically infer, like, to let you know that, like, you're going to the big army. There's a very, very small percentage of Mortarman 11 Charlies, and you are the bastard stepchild. Mm. No one's going to like you and you're going to hate life. We want you to make sure you understand that now. Yeah. And, you know, message received, and then went to airborne school. Okay. Showed up at uh, Fort Bragg. I was in the third of the 504, and like, forget everything you learn. This is how we really
0: do it. <laughs> nice, nice. And 82nd Airborne, for those listening, like that's a very large organization.
1: It is. Um, yeah, it's pretty big. It's uh, responsible for many other things being the... They always have a unit on call, a battalion on call. So uh, they call it the DRF cycle, I think, if I'm remit. So uh, while one brigade of battalions training one's doing something else and one's always on call so that means Mm -hmm. all your gear everything you have is packed away your room's packed up you got to keep your phone on you can't go certain distance and then they will they'll call you and do these tests yeah um you have to be ready to roll out and that's kind of what the 82nd does and um and that and a lot of jumping and rucking
0: yeah yeah that's 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 army training right there what's uh what how long were you there before you first deployed
1: i was there not quite a year and we were on a drf cycle and then we were supposed to go to afghanistan for the elections and we were at the tail end of that cycle so they said no we're gonna let somebody else go and so i'm just everybody's got combat infantryman badges combat patches i'm the only new guy in the whole you know so i'm like man, I really want to go. And that didn't happen. And so we got sent to West point to do some training. Uh, They have something called camp natural bridge. And I guess that's where if you're about to be an officer, they, that's where they go to summer. They don't get to go home. They go there and they learn to call in fire and do all this other stuff. And then I got back from that. We went on block leave and we got the call to go to Iraq. Nice. And, um, I think that, yeah, that was 0, beginning of 05 and 06. And we went and um, we we're supposed to go to Talafar. Apparently there wasn't anything happening at the time, which, and so we, they sent us to Al-Assad. We got attached to the second Marine division uh-huh. and we went up into Haklanaya, cleared that town, Haditha. And after that, they split us. Half of us went to Ramadi yeah. Um, it was attached to one of the JTFs. Um Thanks. nothing sexy, just we were just a blocking position because I think the Rangers were down in Fallujah. And then I got sent up with the the Marines to a place called Al mm-hmm. And um we uh they sent a Mew up there and we basically like there was an operation. I never found out what it was called, but we cleared all these little towns. And uh, then we ended up going back to Ramadi to finish out the rest of the time. And oh, man. that was a nasty, dangerous place.
0: Yeah, we were probably there maybe about some overlap. I was in Ramadi, 05 and 06, and then went to do a mission in Baghdad for a little while. Um, so we are probably in and around some of those same places at, uh, at similar times anyway. But man, uh, were you acting in a, as a, uh, as like a, a mortarman this, throughout this? Or are you, are you now like that's just your MOS, but you're carrying a rifle and, and doing that job?
1: we got there and we had um someone had i don't know how it happened but we we carried 81 millimeter mortars somehow artillery had 120s and we got them and they so we set them up one time and fired uh and it became quickly obvious that you know just to the am- amount of like CAS close air support and you have to do so much deconfliction yeah um And in Afghanistan, that's fine because there's not really anything out there. But, like, if you're in Ramadi, there's stuff everywhere. You're not going to be shooting mortars. So they basically – we became – we had gun trucks. And so we became, like, mounted infantrymen that just kind of drove around shooting things up and whatever. So it turned out pretty cool. Dang. So are you there for over a year? No, I think we were there for about – eight months there was a um i don't really know what happened but something happened where somebody pissed somebody off and um we we left early uh uh-huh. than we were supposed to which was cool for me, you'd had,
0: I was like, oh, awesome. <laughs> you'd had a good run. It was like, out. what did you uh, take away from that deployment? Were you like, Hey, I'm, I'm getting out as soon as I can. Or are you like, Hey, I'm, I'm staying in. Or what, what did you, what lessons did you take away uh, from that deployment?
1: Uh, that, I mean, that deployment was really weird. Um, it, you know, that was like the first time you get shot at, like for me at least, we were ambushed in Ramadi, hit an IED, everything was like, it was chaos, I'd never been shot at before, and um, you know, you start taking fire, and suddenly, like, I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack, I was like, "What? you're supposed to be all cool under combat, and like, this is scary as shit, and um, so for me, it was one of those things, like, when I got back, I actually got promoted to sergeant in Ireland on the way back, so I went from being a Joe to an NCO, like, Uh, I actually didn't even have to go to a board. They had like, since we were out on an operation, I guess they just put my packet in and Mm. whatever. And so that was kind of like humbling and eye opening that they thought I could be an NCO at that. Um, I'd only been in the army. I'd come in as a specialist, but I'd only been in for 18 months. So, um, that training became one of those things where you, you see what, how quickly the, Worst thing in the world can happen.
0: Mm.
1: And um so that was one thing. It's like, I got to, you know, I am a mortarman. I might as well like it mm. or at least get good at it. And yeah. so that's what I took away from that. And Iraq was just fascinating for me. Such an ancient civilization, just so much evil there. And, you know, in retrospect, it's strange how easy people forget, like how and why we were there. And, um, I mean, Afghanistan's a little more so, but, um, there was a lot of things when I later began to write, you know, there were a lot of unanswered questions that kind of found their way into the books. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's very, I'm going to be very therapeutic to explore them through the medium of popular fiction. Um, yeah. what's uh, when you get back, you know, you're going to turn around and go to Afghanistan. You know, you're on some sort of another cycle or what's your, what, what's yours, what happens next?
1: Well, we got back and the army was doing this thing where they're like, we need more people to be able to deploy, but we're not actually, we don't actually have more people. So what (laughs) we're going to do is we're going to create another battalion. Mm. And so back then it was three battalions to a brigade. And so they took one battalion from each brigade and made a brand new brigade and, um, You're supposed to be home for like a year, but since we were brand new and we didn't have any dwell time, is what it was called. Uh, They're like, dwell time. I haven't thought about that in
0: a while. Dwell time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I don't know where that came from, but yeah, that's. I think that's what it was called. I
0: think you're right. You had to be home a
1: certain amount of time, and they're like, well, these guys haven't gone anywhere because they're not in the 504. They're now in the 508. That's right. um, Yeah.
0: Then they just played numbers games with it and had waivers and this and that, and yeah, it didn't really work out.
1: So it was immediately we go like full-on into training cycle um i had to go to uh advanced mortar leader course and benning came back we went to jrtc in louisiana and then it was all cool afghanistan yeah
0: i like that G- yeah, yeah that, uh that's a good spot they have some cool uh training facilities out there uh, at least they did anyway I'm sure that hopefully they're better now but they're awesome even back in the day um, how was Afghanistan what did you know what you were doing do you know exactly where you're going what your mission was going to be or was it kind of like hey you're going there you're gonna be in this area th- this province or at this outstation or what
1: was that like well we went there and uh, Iraq was popping off you know uh, the surge was kind of beginning to happen and they had kind of my understanding is they had overbooked Afghanistan. So they had one more battalion than they actually needed. And right then it was pretty quiet. Mm. We got there in the winter, you know how it is, like nobody's fighting early in the winter. And so they they decided, like, they couldn't, I guess, send us home. So they decided to make us the first tactical theater response force. And they sent us down to Kandahar. And my understanding, the way it worked, was that any ISAF commander – that was having trouble could basically be like, we want those dudes. And okay. they would get, I guess we had a bigger budget and all the assets. So the first thing that happened was we uh the British were having a lot of trouble in the Helmand, uh, specifically the Sangin River Valley. And we uh the entire battalion went like to the Sangin River Valley. And at this time they had split, there's usually four mortar squads in what they call a section so they split us in half and my squad and another gun we were attached to the scout platoon and we spent the entire deployment with those guys just uh basically recon by fire is what we did it was it was pretty awesome but um like go out and make contact yeah like um it totally went against doctrine but literally we learned right away is they would set up kind of an ambush. We would move into the high ground and set up mortar tubes so that we were kind of this, Hey, look at those idiots. And the proof of concept happened on accident. We were in the, uh, the Sangin, and there was an SF team that had gotten in trouble. They'd gotten bogged down in some of the poppy fields. And, uh, so we had been supporting them from across the river and we wanted to move. I think it was down highway one, to get into like a little better position. We crossed the river, we pulled up in this house and I remember being pissed at our platoon sergeant because I'm like, dude, the fight's way over there. Why we got to be right here. And then all of a sudden you started getting this really weird atmosphere, seeing all these people moving around. It Mm. turned out later that the house that we had pulled up into was the regional commander for the Taliban. Wow. And he thought we were there for him. Yeah. So he's on the radio calling everybody. And, uh, we ended up having like an eight or nine hour firefight. Um, it was pretty crazy getting, um, shooting the mortars literally almost straight up Dang. charge one charge zero. They ended up having to call in a couple, uh, F-16 to drop, you know, 500 pounders danger close and, uh, Dang. ran out of ammo. So we were shooting British ammo and, um, we actually got to leave the Sangin early cause we had shot all the mortar rounds that they had in that area.
0: Where did the British ammo come from? Were you with British troops or did they have like a stockpile somewhere?
1: Well, the Brits, I guess, were in charge. Well, they were in charge of that area. So they had they just set up Bob Robinson and their biggest resupply base, what I think was called Bastion. Mm. And I don't were you down in that area I was or up did you farther? Yeah, I was about okay. and, a Bob and Gazra, Gazni, that area. Oh, those were fun. So <laughs> we basically the Brits and the Americans and the Israelis, the eighty-one millimeter mortar system is like a mixed design. So they all shoot the same round. They just have different um what they call cheese charges, which are propellants. So we uh-huh. had four and I think they had six. Okay. Um so they we knew they would shoot the two, and we're like, dude, just load them and speedball them. So they did, kicked them out. And then the Swedish used the um they come with a little charge wheel to just figure out the elevation. Mm-hmm. But um we shot all those and then we came back and did a little more stuff down south and then we got sent up to Nangahar and uh spent two or three months and up in the torah um wow hating life dang that's where'd you operate out of up there uh out of the mountains like oh, man, we yeah. um we were stationed in Jalalabad but um I don't know what really happened at the time I They had, I don't think this is classified anymore. They thought someone had thought they saw bin Laden up in the mountains. And so, um, guys from SEAL Team Six, which I didn't know that's who they are, they called them uh, Task Force Blue or Blue SEALs. I just remember these guys showed up at the Chow Hall looking like Moses, like (laughs) Talton Helton from like the Ten Commandments, like hair all swayed back. And I'm like, who are those dudes? And, uh, you know, they went in there, and I guess it was a dry hole, but you got to hear them just destroying it. And <laughs> we went up into the mountains and just cleared the couple of valleys we were going through and then came back down. But uh,
0: So you moved around that deployment. That's pretty good. You got a lot of different areas you got to see.
1: I i think we saw, I saw, we saw every part of Afghanistan except, uh, I guess there's a desert to the west, I guess. We didn't go there, but we went – I went we went to the Cornigal, uh, after um uh-huh. to relieve the guys at Faber Strepo. Oh wow. We went uh we were literally just playing, you know, firefighters. We went and helped the Jeez. Dutch up and um I can't remember where they were, but they the Dutch and the Australian uh SAS were having some problems. It might have been Coast, I don't remember, but okay. went uh helped the one seventy third again when they were at the. I've been Gosney when they had the farmhouse incident. and So, yeah, we're not, we went all, every place Dang. that they were acting up. So that's a busy that deployment. Me. How long were you there? Yeah, it was 15 months. 15 months? Yeah, we got, Dang. Uh, that's when the, um, the surge kind of stop loss, stop movement. Everybody got extended in the real army. We um,
0: like, what happened to that dwell time thing I heard about?
1: Yeah, it was like, how do you get to stay home? And now I'm getting freaking. And they told us on months. Thanksgiving. I remember, I was like, this is the worst Thanksgiving. That day. you're getting extended? That you thought you were. Yeah, wrong? we were that's in Gosney, and they uh, said we got, there was a mission to go get some uh, missionaries, I think they were in the city. Mm. They went out there and we provided a little security, came back and they're like, oh, by the way, you're also getting extended. And that is brutal. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's so a, you're just that's like, a, oh, okay. Yeah, there was. I put it in the first book, so I don't remember the the name right now. But I, I looked up to make sure I got the right uh, unit in there. But I remember when I was in Iraq in two thousand four, I want to say that an army unit. Man, they thought they were going home. It was like the year one year mark, and they thought they were going home. Guys had already flown back. I think a, a lot of them. They went to a few different places, I believe, but a lot of them went, went to Alaska. Went from Alaska, I think. Um, so they'd already sent that like I don't forget what you call it, the advance party, I guess, or the reverse advance party, whatever, back home to prepare to yeah have everybody else follow on after that and just prep everything and all that so they'd already sent those guys back um then they they were at the airfield and they get word that hey you're extended by like four months i think it was like that's pretty brutal like couldn't you guys thought of this a little bit earlier like and some of those guys i think came back and they ended up not making it so they'd already gone home seen their families they had to go back for another four months and then some of them didn't
1: didn't make it brutal it makes you wonder like who is in charge of that circus sometimes
0: yeah and uh well once again zero accountability uh across the board for 20 years um nobody relieved even today today they, i think today the the uh, ig report on the withdrawal from afghanistan was released i think this morning um so i, didn't, I don't know if it's a unclassified or if it's like parts are redacted or if there's a version for citizens or what, I don't know. I haven't seen it, seen it yet, but I saw that it was released this morning and uh, the, the headline I saw said it was an honest assessment of, uh, of the withdrawal. And they'll, I think they'll go in front of Congress and answer questions and,
1: and all that sort of thing. But uh, my goodness. But everybody will years. be fine. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, you read the Afghanistan papers oh, and yeah. it's Craig, kind of like, yeah, that, That's That's a gut punch. And Uh, um, Craig Whitlock is awesome.
0: Afghanistan papers, for those who have not read it, should pick it up. Oh, you have to read it. Last year. And uh, we had a great conversation about that. But uh, two Freedom of Information Act request lawsuits uh, against the federal government to release these transcripts of interviews that they uh, conducted on people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And essentially what happened was they uh, got these documents declassified uh, or released to the public. And then what Craig Whitlock did was juxtapose it to what they were saying in front of Congress. So you have this general in front of Congress saying the exact same things the guy before him said, which were, uh, we're making progress. Uh, we need is a little more money, some more budget, some more time. And, uh, then they juxtapose, he juxtaposes that with what he said in private, in conversations that he thought were going to remain classified. And it was 180 out and it's All of those senior level leaders, um, for the most part, said, we're making progress in front of Congress. Just need more money, more time, more troops. And then privately, when they had come back and gave these declassified, these classified histories, they had a different assessment. So essentially, they were lying to Congress, lying to their troops and lying to the American people. But
1: that's what I always thought was like, yeah, we call that a lie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if uh, Sergeant Josh Hood had tried that crap, you'd be in you'd be in the the brig making like small <laughs> rocks out of big rocks that's you right know, but these guys and it, it's the same with this intelligence stuff that's got leaked by this airman in you know massachusetts like i was looking through that and i was like how does some dude like some he's got a, i had a secret clearance but like there weren't like computers i guess as much back then but like how does some dude just like go on there and was like, I want to see what the joint chiefs of staff's talking about. Then I'm going to print it out. And then I'm <laughs> Is gonna, that what he did? You know, put it on the internet.
0: Yeah, that's bizarre. I, um, I haven't had a chance to look into it yet. I want to read everything that he put out and see how he did it. Um, but, uh, I haven't had a chance yet. Uh, so I've been, pretty busy, but I plan on looking, looking into it. Very, very curious about, uh, there's a book there. Gonna, I'm telling you, well, there's definitely things that are going to make it into a book for sure. There's probably yeah. an entire book. You're right. But there are certainly things that'll wind up in, uh, in one of my next novels. Um, but man, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading because I thought I just did a like brief headline scan on that stuff. Um, but I, for some reason, I thought he was like taking pictures of the screen with his phone, like doing screenshots, like just taking it into a place where you're supposed to lock up your phone, you know, but yeah, you know, they always say there's monitors to check that stuff. I don't know if every not place, there, uh, I guess. <laughs> I guess not. At the, like my
1: question uh, is yeah. like this dude, just like, like I've never been into like, I don't know if it'd be a skiff or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but he's just like, I'm just gonna print this. And nobody as like, there's nothing on the other end that's like, hey, who's printing this stuff? And uh, does he have access? And then when he walks out, like with a big sheet of paper. Yeah, uh, yeah, carrying, his, carrying a stack crazy? of papers. <laughs> yeah, don't mind me, guys.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting. But I want to read what he put out because um, I all I've seen is the headlines, you know, and uh, the headlines that are saying that uh, the things that you can now read um, because they're leaked are essentially once again 180 out from what the administration has been telling us is going on in Ukraine. So I'm uh, I'm curious to read that when I come up for air here in the next couple weeks. So um, yeah, I'll let it play out and download all those things print them myself probably and uh yeah. give them a read <laughs> man wild what um so man what do you take away from that Afghanistan deployment are you uh after 15 months over there are you gung ho to stay in or are you like I'm out of this outfit
1: I was pretty done at that yeah.
0: point um and how about the guys I'm, you were with I'm not- how about the guys you were with? Were they uh, Were they kind of the same mindset? Like, hey, fifteen months is enough, or were some guys like gung ho to stay in and come back and keep getting after it?
1: Well, the the senior guys like me, we were stop loss, so I was already supposed to be out of the military. Oh wow! And I was still in Afghanistan for another however many months, like oh, six man. seven months. And so, uh, and for those listening, you know,
0: stop loss is uh, you can get out but by your contract and by your time, but military says negative. We're just keeping you Yeah, you, you didn't
1: forward. read your contract well <laughs> enough. at the <laughs> very bottom, it you're actually print. signing. <laughs> so if you sign up for four years or three years or two years, you're actually signing up for a total of eight years. Or
0: however much we tell and, you under the yeah. stop loss program.
1: <laughs> right. And so the defining moment for me is we went to this little tiny fob. I think it was called Methalom. Mm. And the people at, in this unit were the lowest rank was an E five. Yeah. And they all had different combat combat patches and they were the saltiest people I'd ever seen. Like zero F's given, um, you know, and it's like, they didn't care. And I'm like, who are these dudes? Yeah. Uh, why is there such so much rank and why is everybody hating life? And they're like, Oh, they're from IRR. And I was like, what's IRR like? uh that's when you get out of the army and they recall you to come right back because you still have time on your your contract i was like i don't i don't think that's true and (laughs) i started talking to them and these that's exactly what happened these guys (laughs) all of them had hadn't been out of the army three four months some of them just gotten back from iraq got out of the army and they're like we need more dudes so you change um, your
0: number immediately
1: Right. They just come on, let's go, buddies. Yeah. Crank so, caller. Who's
0: this? Who's this? Crank caller. Yeah.
1: Crank caller. Like, you know, you're like, is this a joke? Yeah. And they're like, no, it's not a joke. And apparently, I mean, people would say I'd run or whatever, but you don't really have a choice. You know, oh, you're, yeah. you're going to go to jail. You're going to be a, whatever. That's not right. who. Right. Most Americans in that position would be like, this sucks. Here we go again. Yeah. And, uh, but I wanted nothing to do with that. So I was like, ah, maybe this war's never going to end and I don't really want to come back here right away. So I got out and, um, uh, made a deal with the national guard where they would cut my dwell, my IR time in half. And, um, I could not deploy. Um, while I was doing that, I was trying to get on the sheriff's department. And then, um, it turned out that, uh, like there were some ptsd undiagnosed things that started happening like i came back and signed into this unit national guard's pretty chill um but they were immediately like we're going to iraq and i'm like i don't know what this we stuff is i got a contract (laughs) like well you didn't read that contract either because at the very bottom (laughs) it says that you know um whatever so long story short we're getting ready to kind of get these trucks ready and I happened to just start this Humvee and there was just something, one of my good friends was killed in a, a Humvee, hit an IED. There was something, I guess, about that diesel smell that just like uh, put me in this. I thought I was having a heart attack. I actually never really told this story, but um, started kind of like throwing up. Didn't know what was going on. Thought I was having a heart attack. Didn't realize there was a panic attack. Um, one of the senior dudes there was like, dude, are you okay? Did you eat something? I'm like, no, I don't. I started this Humvee. And so that they basically sent me to the VA and got me checked out and they're like, Oh, you have PTSD. Mm. Um, and so my time in the guard was shortened even more than I thought it was. I ended up getting a, uh, medical discharge for that. Mm. Um, and I don't know, it was entered the sheriff's department and that was kind of like the abrupt end to my time in the military. So, um, Yeah. Back then PTSD wrote and really talked about.
0: Did the sheriff's department have
1: questions about that or was that just like totally separate things? Yeah. I was like, I'm not telling these guys because (laughs) I was kind of in denial. I was like, I don't have that. You know, only people who are weak have that type stuff and Uh I've later matured and learned and, you know, kind of worked through those things. But back then that was kind of like a ego, you know, the hit to your ego is like, what do you mean? I'm not fit enough to be in the national guard. Like, do I really suck? Uh Um, And so it worked out, uh, yeah. went to the sheriff's department and because of my military was allowed to go try out for SWAT early. We have, uh, actually two full-time tier one SWAT teams here in tennis in Memphis and, um, spent, I guess the next nine years doing that. Dang, maybe that for
0: a while. How did, uh, how have you dealt with the post-traumatic stress stuff? Have you managed that? Um, how, how did you, have you dealt with that?
1: Um, originally when I went there and to the VA, they gave me this like paper sack full of, um, meds, you know, they're like, yeah, PTSD, take this. And I'm looking at, I'm wow. go home and it's what like was it? take one to go. It was, I, I don't even know, like I didn't take any of it, but it was like, I guess, uh, all types of just like pharmaceutical, something to take like a Valium. If you're feeling crappy during the day, like an antidepressant and I like. Wow. whatever. And so they didn't even ask, like, if I, what's your thoughts on prescription pills? Are you allergic? There's like, wow, literally. And there's no supervision. I mean, this was wow. back in 2009, I think
0: still that's, still it was still like been at war for eight years yeah. You know?
1: Well, I mean, you look at some Gosh. of this stuff and it, some of that stuff was like, turns out was pretty dangerous. Yeah. You know? Like my <laughs> wife's a nurse and, you know, she's, you know, we talk about it later and they were, drug interactions between some of these things there's like you know you shouldn't just really hand anybody like a 90 count bottle of valium like you don't know you know i could have been like a pill head and been like oh but so i felt it was pretty irresponsible um
0: and that's that's how it is across the board that story is not you know unfortunately it's not unique it's like hey okay ptsd here's your bag of pills good luck
1: yeah and you know, it's sad because it, I think that we have this suicide epidemic and um, that's going along with that. And it's kind of like you would think the military would kind of have this, hey, you break it, you bought it mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say I had any resentment. The resentment, I guess, didn't come until, like, you know, the fall of Afghanistan. And then, then you start to question why. Yeah. Like, why did I do all this? Why did my friends die? Why did all this stuff happen when, like, you just kind of throw us and these other people away. Like we're trash. Yeah. And I'm not like, I know a lot of guys who've gone the, the, the spectrum where they like start to think negative about the United States. Like, you know, I believe the heart of this country is still strong. I believe in everything that we did, you know, we signed up to do a job. I wasn't under any pasty daydreams of what I was going to do. But I do think you have the right to question the direction um, especially when you have kids and you see um, America, American policymakers have a tendency to not remember mistakes made, and then like you know, ten years down the road, like, "Hey, we need to go back to Afghanistan. and We need your son to go with us." You know, that's going to be an issue. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh man, yeah, it's uh, you know they think in terms of four-year election cycles, maybe eight tops but um yeah we neglect to take those lessons and apply them going forward as wisdom time and time again and uh then you get the withdrawal the way we saw it there but that one is like you don't need any time in the military you don't need any touch points in the military you don't need to read a book on tactics or on strategy or geopolitics or anything to just look at that situation apply common sense to it and say hey we should probably keep people at bagram until we get out of here Um, why would we put them in this tactically disadvantageous position uh, I don't know. And then you have senior level officials just recently in a press conference saying it was a success. And meanwhile, there are people fault you. They're asking you not to look and believe your own eyes and see planes leaving and people hanging off landing gear and falling to their deaths and not remembering that babies were thrown over walls and impaled and, and, uh, bleed out and all this Constantina wire. Um, but Hey, that's a success. Okay. All you do need to do is apply a little common sense to that and they just keep asking us not to believe our own eyes and it's uh yeah it's
1: disheartening and it's disgusting actually well we have a history you know you look at america from back in the day and this concept of the city on the hill what we you know started out to do what you know we're this idea of you know everybody comes here together we'll get better we work together as, you know, a country, you know, we have that fabric beginning to be torn apart, but it, what's the most disheartening is this is nothing new. You know, this was done in Vietnam. This is like, it's like, we are kind of, we have a leadership that, and I don't even know if it's a hundred percent, the leadership's problem because as I've grown and matured, I've, I've began to think to myself, like, we owe it to this country and to ourselves to demand more, not only of our leadership, but also of ourselves, right? We have to, to like, is this acceptable? Like, at who are we? Like, when did America become a place where people don't check to see what the facts are, where they don't know about foreign affairs, where they don't know, like, um, hey, maybe some of these things make us look like Uh, Not so great. This isn't who we are. And I think that, you know, uh, for me personally, you know, social media has become like one of those things you have to do, kind of, to you're trying to promote books. But at the same time, uh, it's kind of strange how my wife and other people, they take that as news, like that's reality.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, I think that if you continue down that path, you begin to, I mean, you're a student of history. It's all there. It's all written down. Yeah. But people just, I, I don't understand how it, they just don't take the time or like maybe it's an arrogance or an ego. I don't know.
0: Well, there's certainly the accountability side of it. Let's uh, like say World War II, we have George Marshall, who's obviously known for the Marshall Plan rebuilding Europe. But uh, m- most people don't really think about when they hear his name that. He put all those people in places, all those names of the generals and admirals that we know today from history books or that you've, if you haven't studied the history of World War II, you're, you're familiar with because um, you have heard it somewhere. And uh, there were other people in those positions at the start of the war, and if they made a mistake or two, uh, he'd give them a second chance. But after that, no, you were out and someone else was moved in that could do the job. They were leaders were held accountable back then. George Marshall did not mess around when it came to accountability. And then something changed. Something changed between Korea and Vietnam, certainly throughout Vietnam, which continues today, uh, whereas failure is rewarded with advancement. And you are moved along and the next guy comes in and he doesn't want to do anything that's going to uh, upset his track if he's going to continue on to get that next star and then sit on that board seat at some defense contracting company. Um, So it became an industry. I mean, the the military industrial complex is a real thing. Um, And just like the pill mills we're talking about right here, I mean, that that pharmaceutical industry, there's a reason they hand you that bag of pills. And the person handing you that bag of pills probably doesn't even know. Um, But uh, it's all part of this machine. Um, But holding leaders accountable is something that fell by the wayside essentially after World War II. And look what's happened since. So I think a lot of it comes back to that. Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal Credit Union is here to help military members and their families tackle home ownership during this high rate market. With their new no refi rate drop option, if you buy your next home now and mortgage rates drop later, you could lower your rate by paying a low fee instead of refinancing and paying thousands in closing costs. They offer mortgage options with zero down payment, so you don't need to wait years to save. Also, planning any travel this summer? Navy Federal flagship credit card treats members to our highest rewards and premium benefits. Flagship makes it easy to rack up rewards with higher points on travel, including everything from tolls to terminals. Earn a bonus 40,000 points when you spend 4,000 in the first 90 days. Plus, enjoy a free year of Amazon Prime. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Federally insured by NCUA, membership required, equal housing lender. Terms and conditions apply, loans subject to approval and eligibility requirements. Open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. As of 5-1-2023, the rates for flagship are 14.74% to 18%. Based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non Navy federal ATMs, a $49 annual fee for Visa Signature flagship rewards. Navyfederal.org. But, um, Sheriff's Department, did you want to be, did you know you were going to go for the Sheriff's Department while you were still in, or was that something you wanted to do
1: after your time in the military? Or what, how did that I did now? not. I got out, when I got out in 2008, the economy was. Mm. gone and you don't really know too much about the economy being in the military or especially if you're overseas and uh you know i had an english degree from college so there wasn't much i could do and uh i knew i was like well you know some type of stability like they're always going to need cops they are always gonna need garbage men, they're always gonna need something like that and like i've got this skill set and it seems to work and so i kind of got into that uh that way i got lucky um In that, you know, that opportunity was there. I got to learn a lot of stuff that um, I didn't, when you're in the military, when you're in the Army or the 82nd, there's a lot of things you do um, that are just, I don't even know how they happen. Like, you know, you'd be cleaning your weapons. Hey, we're bored. Go clean your weapons. And literally you'd sit there and you look at some of these weapons. I look back at it now. It's terrifying. Like (laughs) there's no bluing on the weapon. Like, you know, you're looking at the oh, the bolts, you're looking at yeah. like, you know, the chambers and like, these things are all just oh, like shot out. No one's borescoped scoped and pulled over anything. And like, that's what cleaning is. You're using metal tools on a piece of metal and like that bluing was there for a reason. And um, luckily in SWAT, I got a much more intensive understanding of everything Shooting rifles, ballistics. Uh, got to go down to uh Shaw's, which I think nice. they call oh, um, yeah.
0: Mid South uh, Institute of Self Defense. Yep,
1: yeah, awesome. We uh, that's not far from us. A lot of the guys that were uh on our team, the older dudes were instructors there at sometimes, and so we got to go train there. We got to go to tier one, we got to go to Darcy. Nice, we got the. there's like this hub of all these places. Got the, um, because at that time, like. SEAL Team 6 was doing, I think, Green Team down at Charles. And then it was mainly like an SF, like special operations thing, where it kind of started off as police. But you get to learn new concepts that they were using um, over there and learn to shoot pistols well, learn what different bullets, calibers, et cetera. And I think that really helped my writing. Um, You know, you get a lot deeper understanding of CQB and stuff.
0: Yeah. How long did it take for you to get on the, the SWAT team? Do you did you was there any training? Do you have to go to like for a sheriff's department? Do you have a it's not do you have to do posts or anything or what do you do to, to get on that? Yeah,
1: program? you we um you know, you go you go through the initial hiring process, they you know, do your background check, et cetera. And then you go um through the boot camp like the training academy is what they call it. And I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it was a couple months. And you know, you learn uh most of it's like you said, post requirements, you have to have this much time. So you learn a lot about law and this other dumb stuff and you march around and then you learn how to shoot. And then, um, most everybody ends up going to patrol. And so in there, you, they put you on a shift, you have like a FTO, which is field training officer and you just ride around in a car, um, uh, learning kind of how to be a cop. And, um, really quickly, I was like, this Pushing lead, what they call it, just driving around. That's not for me, you know. Um, I was on what they call Baker shift, which is like the mid kind of shift, and so people are coming home from work, finding their stuff's broken into guys, you know. So it was like they call it a turbo shift, so you're just riding around, writing reports, doing all the stuff. And uh, one day I just happened to see the SWAT team like out there, fast roping out of uh, a helicopter, and I was wow. like, dude, I want to do that, yeah, and so was able to apply. And because of my military, um, experience, usually have to be on for like two years. Uh, was able to kind of fast track that went to the tryout, which, uh, kind of sucked. Um, and then entered, uh, the actual, what they call SWAT school, which was about, uh, seven or eight weeks. Yeah. And the guys there based like the first phase off of that, discovery buds channel <laughs> so it was like it was pretty much exactly uh, the same you know you had your log you had all your stuff only thing we didn't have were those boats but uh <laughs> it was like this is terrible but oh, right.
0: um what was once you got on the team what was your first uh like do you do like no knock warrants stack on the door go in do a server warrant whatever you're doing what was your first like experience of going into a kind of an unknown situation or i don't know barricaded shooter hostage situation, whatever it was, what, uh, what was
1: that, that first one? Like, well, my first call out happened. That's what they call them. Um, literally the day we, we had to get sprayed with, uh, they use a, a, like a regular CS mace and then they use, uh, this other stuff called top cop, which is terrible. And, but they, (laughs) they spray you with it and like, you, you're supposed to go home because you, like oc spray will wear off pretty quick it might yeah. make you throw up the gas but like this other stuff i don't know what it had in it but it's like feels like your face is on fire they open up the fire hydrant you're scrubbing yourself oh. but you're supposed to go home uh so i had home and um on the way you have it at this point i had to like take home tahoe or a, a, the truck that they had and you got all your gear in the back nice. and you got like a cell phone or a beeper or whatever it was and we got a call out where a guy who's actually a serbian national holding his um wife hostage wow and so i'm like i'm not really operational but i go back and they put me with the snipers <laughs> you can't see house. but you have the you have the sniper <laughs> Yeah. Like, I'm like, what am I supposed to do? And so we're up in this attic and it's really hot. And so the OC crystals and everything start reactivating and they're oh like, my Hey, you need to watch. I'm like, I can't see oh, my on fire. you're an
0: attic of some other, another private residence, like across the street or yeah, somewhere?
1: like across the street. And they're on the rifles. And, and what do you like, do?
0: Just knock on the door and say, excuse us. We need to use your attic. Is it okay? Or do you just, yeah, use that's, the attic?
1: uh, well, they, you know, the, once they have a call out, they basically, um, set up a perimeter. So you got patrol officers setting up perimeter and the idea is you want to evacuate the houses to the left and the right and within any line of sight and everything. And, and back then we did things a little bit different. We weren't explosive breaching yet. We weren't um, doing some other stuff. So it was kind of like it looked cool to me, but you know, it was like some Keystone cops crap with, Mm. you know, guy sneaks around the house and knocks the meter off the house. So you'll cut the power and then, you know, all this stuff. And then uh, it was, they bring a pumper in and they're pumping uh what do you like water like a fire like apparently that some fire trucks can pump hot water huh. so they're pumping that in there cuz the guys like you know throwing gasoline around the house is nuts they ended up having to shoot the dude luckily it wasn't one of the snipers cuz i couldn't see uh anything and then the next call out was right after graduation we went and hit uh a um a club at the Mexican mafia was using for muling um, like drugs and stuff. We drove out there and, you know, it was straight dynamic back then, you know, it was drive up, ram the door. And that's my job, ram the door. They'd go in in a stack and, you know, just that we used to call rush the flush. They're just trying to like get in real quick, not very tactical at all. And then as we began to progress, our tactics got a little more savvy, uh, Um, we started using explosive breaching a lot, you know, porting, uh, trying to clear as, much, you know, try to call out like a lot of people think that's like wuss stuff, but it's like, why go in if they'll come out? Yeah. And,
0: uh, what were you guys using? Do you have ARs?
1: Yeah, we had, um, at the time we had L and T's, the old monolithic rail one that was like super heavy. And, um, what was your pistol? We were using a, a SIG, I always get it messed up. Is it? The, the 229, the big one, or is it 226? 226
0: would be the 9 road. mil. Okay, nice. And then, yeah, uh, one's shotguns? like
1: kind of the smaller one.
0: Okay. Uh, the 228 back in the day, but those were probably not even around back then.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, not, yeah, we had the 226, 228, uh, 239. Those are the ones that we ended up, uh, using downrange, kind of like the family of 9 mil. Yeah,
1: around. it's like the double single. And it was, uh, this one, I think they it was like the first iteration of the Legion kind oh, of thing. Okay. Yeah, they were. I mean, it wasn't the cool 320s that yeah. they have now, but, um, you know, they were a great pistol, did what they're supposed to, reliable, everything. Um, nice. now they're making amazing pistols. That new Legion and the Spectre Comp, that's a, it's a tack driver.
0: Yeah, it's some cool stuff. What, uh, what shotguns do you guys use and did you use them just for, for breaching?
1: Uh, we had like, you know, we had a bunch of stuff. We had like the Benelli M2s, um, you know, I got the, I carry as a, one of the breachers, I carried the little master key, you know, the cutoff, uh, was it 1170 or, uh, 1100. 1100. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, the same thing I carried in Iraq. It was just like a little pump shotgun. You just, if you oh, needed it to go, then.
0: Then it was the eight seventy, probably if it's a pump.
1: Yeah. But, maybe that's it. Yeah. Um, they all run together, you know, so, um, you know, be able to, so for breaching, just interior, exterior doors carried that, um, we had some of the old, uh, the MP5s, which are cool, but... Did you use them so? Yeah, we had uh, a couple of them. You know, it's kind of that thing where they're like, oh, like, everybody in the military is using the AR, so, like, why would we use 9 mils? And we had them um, in 9 and, I believe, 40. Yeah. And I was like, why not? These things are awesome. Uh, but that wasn't the cool, you know, gear kind of gets, like, This Gucci gear mentality where everybody wants like the cool stuff, and I guess MP, I thought the MP5s are awesome,
0: yeah, yeah. We did our first uh, first post, uh. 9-11 9-11 deployment, still with him doing shipboarding operations with him. But then everything switched to, to hours later.
1: Yeah, we had the old Chalker slings and everything. Oh, nice. Like, those are the probably sling. money now. Probably. Yeah. Dang
0: it. Mine's in a bag that went to a friend's house. And then he got divorced and all my stuff. I'm so, I don't like thinking. I, I don't, it don't like talk about it. I don't even cash. like talking about it. But uh, okay, I remember we'll the Chalker sling. Things. I remember that. Man. Oh, gosh, it was probably one of those bags. Ugh. All right. I'm going to put that aside. Uh, so how long did you do that before you started writing? Or you, do you start writing while you're doing this?
1: I started writing while I was doing that and oddly enough, uh, kind of circling back to my dad, I'd always known that I was going to be a writer kind of like he always knew that he wanted to be an artist, but it was just something, you know, my mom used to joke and say like the only writers who make money are those who write ransom notes. (laughs) So you're going to have to get a real job, you know? And, um, and so when I was in the army, I had a team leader and, he they kind of made fun of me and hazed me when I came in because I came in as a specialist because of college and they're like they found out I was an English major and wanted to be a writer and they're like who are you Bill Shakespeare and whatever <laughs> uh, but you know as it happens you know you deploy with these guys you become friends and you know we'd talk about movies and books and things like that then literally one day out of the blue I get a call uh, unknown number from like Salt Lake City I answer it and it, the guy's name was Jody. like hey man what's up like dude what do you you know what's going on and uh he had long story short he had he just basically said dude i just got a degree in english and i just uh published my first book it wasn't through a big five or anything but he had published a book i'm like dude you were like barely literate (laughs) you're kidding me and he's like dude look it up so i looked it up on amazon sure enough and like that hit me kind of like a ton of bricks because at that moment I realized, you know, you've been running from this, you want to do it. I guess maybe you're scared. You're not whatever, but this guy, like he took that dream from talking to you and then he just went and executed. Huh. So literally I got off the phone. I went upstairs. I grabbed my old laptop that I'd had in Afghanistan and I started what would become clear by fire. My first book and um, got that finished was rejected about 82 times by agents. And then how did you well, find, 81.
0: how did you, how did you do that? Did you go through that book of agents and start sending them out or query yeah, letters? Back
1: then, you know, they had, um, I'll say back then, this was like 2015, but they had this, <laughs> uh, what was it? The, this is like a phone book and it was like yeah. all the agents. It's like and
0: the so, year, the, you know, whatever year it was, 2018, Yeah. It was like the writer of something. agents. Yeah.
1: And so you just go through and you're like, this guy kind of, uh, Like I didn't know about genres or anything. I just like, I just, I thought they were action adventure. I knew I wanted to be a military type book. So I started kind of like looking at guys who were out there, Clancy, um, Vince Flynn, uh, I'm trying to think of who else was out there, but maybe Mark, Mark granny was kind of, he might've been writing back then. Um, But I mean, you don't really know anything going into it. So you kind of look through here, Brad Thor, I'm sure he was, um, you find the guys like, okay, this guy's in this genre, and these agents represent it. So you just make this list, and then you just start emailing these query letters out, and um, like I said, it was like 82 rejections, mm-hmm. and odd thing was that I remember being like, maybe this book sucks, maybe I should just do something else, and I was like, you know, thinking back to Afghanistan, one day you're in Afghanistan, and then you get on this freedom bird, you fly home, and then like, just like that, your entire world changes. You're now back in the States. It's like, you know, maybe you have faith in what it is. You think it's a good book. Um, like, whatever. I don't care. It'll kill me. I'll put a thousand rejections. I don't care. One day, somebody's going to say yes. So the next day, I literally flipped the list, started back over at the beginning. And the first guy sent out, I think like in batches of five or six, first guy that rejected me went out to him. He actually like. Read it, signed me and sold two books to touchstone which is now i think owned by atria Hmm. within the span of like two weeks and it's just that was one of those lessons where you know it always gets darkest before the dawn but if you stop right there you never know what uh you know what lives on the other side of a no
0: nice so you get this one first one publishes gets out there uh you start you do the second one
1: yeah then i wrote warning order um they uh you know it's it's kind of like you know how it is it's kind of uh you can write a great book or what you think is a great book people can like it and it just doesn't sell something just doesn't work and it was one of those things uh the second book comes out and then i think touchstone got bought or kind of like swallowed by atria which was simon and schuster so there was basically like nobody wanted another one of those books and um uh, kind of had to do. I had to do some ghost riding to kind of get back in the game because, you know, typically my understanding is they look at numbers and they're like, oh, you didn't sell that many, whatever." Like, you know, it's kind of hard to get that second bite at the apple. Sometimes um, did some ghost riding and then actually the first time I met you was at BowsherCon. Yeah, and I also Florida. met Tom Colgan there. Yep, And uh, she met Tom. That, yeah, dur- and then Tom was the one who asked me on that trip uh basically hey he's, he just said hey don't get into anything i might have something for you i'm like okay and a week later he called about the the ludlum and the Treadlo- tread dude
0: Treadlo- that is awesome you know, people ask me all the time you know how do you find an agent how do you get published and you know i tell people that hey go to PoucherCon, go to thriller fest yeah. like it's not going to hurt to go to these places. And like, if you weren't there, if you're like, "Eh, I don't think I'm gonna go to about this year, I'll wait for, you know, the next one, or I'm kind of busy right now or whatever. Hey, that meeting with Tom Colgan might not happen. And Treadstone and everything else might not have happened. I mean that you got to be there. And even if it's just, kind of even if you don't really know that you need to be there, go in there and just kind of soaking it in will make you realize like, okay, now I see how important this is, um, to be at these places, get to understand a little more about the industry, understand about the, the agents and the publishing process and the editors and the imprints and all the, how all this ecosystem works together, um, just by being there and striking up a conversation, asking a question of a panel where you have these authors up there for 45 minutes or whatever it is, um, giving a little talk and then answering questions, um, for days for like three days, um. So, yeah, it does not hurt to go to those things if you are an sp- aspiring author. And that worked. That's awesome that you met Tom there.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, I've used this situation and because I had gotten a hold of an advanced copy of your book, but during Bauschcon, your book hadn't come out yet. Let's see. What um, was that one? Yeah. The
0: first one was out. Because what year is this? This is 2018. What, oh, 17? I believe so. I think it was 18. Okay. I don't know anyway, regardless.
1: <laughs> well, and, and a lot of people will say, well, I don't have this or I don't have that. I don't have a book yet. I don't have a book done. And and my memory could be off, but I remember like your book was in production, but it wasn't released yet. Maybe it was, and I, I could be wrong, but I was like, well, Jack was there and he was talking, you know, about his book that wasn't out yet. You know, he yeah, no doing- first one was out. Yeah. First
0: one was out. Okay. Second one was, uh, had not come out yet. So this is, I forget what time of year this was. It was either. This was
1: like in August or it was, it was hot. I just remember that. Like it August
0: 2018. So, so uh book had been out for a few months,
1: I think. All right. Well, either way, still, you know, it's like you don't have to be like a Lee child or somebody else to begin to make that ripple. You know, you're, you're getting out there. And I don't know why I thought that I'll have to look it up. And I'll get back to you because I thought that it was special because, you know, maybe it hadn't been out long enough to get all this momentum, but you were still there doing the work. Mm-hmm. You were still there meeting people. You were still there, you know, make the networking, understanding how this works, you know, getting your name out because a lot of people think that it's a hundred percent, the book, but I've begun to learn, you know, from, watching you and others is like the author and the book you know they're they're almost trying to live vicariously through you and like those things go hand in hand and back in the day it was like an author could just sit away in his room and just type away and put it out and oh he's a master but the world that doesn't work that, that way anymore you know and I think you have kind of Put this spotlight on that, that there's really not that much wiggle room between what you are and what you're writing about and how many other ways can it spin off.
0: Yeah, people want today, uh, well, at least since I'd say by about 2000, 2005 for, for sure, um, want to know more about that author and where this stuff comes from. Because you can do that with other, in other industries, with other products, um, and you can get to, to know that person behind whatever that widget might be. And in our case, it's it's books. And the book has to be the best it can possibly be. But then people have to know it exists because there are a lot of choices out there. And you're also competing right. with... Every app, every social media platform, uh, every streaming service, uh, along with all the, the more traditional legacy types of entertainment, like movies and, and other books. Um, so having that connection with an audience is uh, is important today with the readership, I think. And I realize that just by looking at the space, like I look at the battlefield, Um yeah, I, gaps in the enemy's defenses, capitalizing on momentum, adapting faster than your enemy um, and just looking at the uh, the publishing space uh, and applying some common sense to it like we talked about earlier and realizing that, hey, you can do these things today that you couldn't or have done in 1985 and they probably wouldn't have done for a lot of authors in, in 1985 even if they they had existed. It was probably better for a lot of authors to not be out there and to just be typing away. Uh, and that's what I thought before. Like that, that was part of the appeal growing up because I'm growing up right. in the 80s reading all these books in 90s and you're like, well, I just live in a cabin and write and send it to new york and then start the next one like that's that's part of the appeal but then of course when i come of age in the publishing industry that's not how it is anymore unless you're an outlier i'm sure there are, are outliers here and there But can still you know there's always outliers in any uh, in any profession in any industry but uh yeah gotta be gotta be in there doing the job first making sure the book's the best it can possibly be that product that widget is the best it can possibly be but then how do you connect with connect with that audience? How do you connect with that reader? How do you connect with other products with that consumer, um, clientele, whatever it might be. Um, So yeah, but it's fun. It's fun because you're learning new things and you're adapting to an ever-changing environment. So that's just what I did on the battlefield. Although I got to handle problems a little more violently and aggressively, but you can still do that. In the pages of a, of a thriller, right? It, you just get a little more time to figure things out, you know. And and if you mess it up, guess what? No one's going home in a body bag, uh, so you can sleep on it. You can figure it out. You can go back and make it better. Make a better decision. Pages back. So, um, yeah, man. So I, I love it. But that was a great that was a great conference. Bouchercon was amazing. That was Florida, St. Petersburg, right? St. Petersburg, Florida.
1: I believe so. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so
0: that was fantastic. That was so much fun. And then I love going to Bouchercon and uh, Thriller Fest. I'll be there Thriller Fest again this year. Um, I'm a spotlight guest, but when they asked me to do it, I didn't realize that it was like two years ago that they asked me and I'm like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Early June. Uh, okay. Or or I don't even know if they had the date back then, but, uh, I was like, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's such an honor. And then just a couple months ago, I was like, wait, when's my daughter's graduation from high school? I'm like, Oh, it's the exact same day that I was supposed to be doing this thing on Friday Mm. at Thriller Fest. And I was, so I called David Brown, publicist, Simon Schuster. I'm like, Oh, can we push things to Saturday? Um, And so I'll take a red eye out on, uh, on Friday after graduation, show up on Saturday morning and go right to the, right to the event and do the, do the uh, the interview and then the thing at the night or whatever. But uh, anyway, always, always go, go, go. But point being, they're fun events. I don't understand
1: how you do it. It's like, uh, (laughs) I'm exhausted. Like, how does this guy not sleep? Because, you know, behind all of that what nobody maybe only writers see is like all this energy you're putting out you still have to be thinking about that next book you know you still have to be thinking about the book of the future and like people think it's kind of easy but uh i think we've talked about it before like especially if you're writing you come from the military and you're writing these books like you once you kind of get that low hanging fruit, you're starting to drill really deep into yourself. And that last Treadstone book I wrote was actually set in, um, you know, Afghanistan, right up, up to the fall of Kabul. And you know, uh, I've had issues with deadlines, and people are like, "Oh, I'll just write words," and you know, you have your standard of what you know is good. And sometimes like, you know, art just takes its own time to manifest and you can't, I feel like I'm cheating my readers. If I, I would love to turn in early, but if it's, if it's bad, you know, they're, they're spending good money on this. Like these books aren't cheap. And, uh, but you start to drill into certain things and it takes you places that you didn't expect. And you're like, look, this story that was going this way is now going this way. It's so much better, but I just need a little more time. And it's like. Sometimes that's hard. Uh, I can't imagine for you. (laughs) Well,
0: I'm very fortunate that um, my deadlines or how do you say soft, deadlines, I guess is the best way to put it. So, um, ever thankful to Emily Bessler and uh, the crew over at Simon & Schuster, Emily Bessler books for giving me that, uh, that leeway. Cause sometimes it does take a little, little longer. Sometimes that book you thought was going to be, oh, it's probably going to end up being about 115,000 words, 120,000, probably tops based on my outline. And now my previous experience writing these other books, I kind of, well, guess what? This last one I passed 100, I passed 115, I passed 125, uh, passed 130. And it just, that's just what the story was taking. So it's just how it, how it goes. But you're right, art, you can't like, it's, it's tough. You can't be like, my painting will be done on this day. Um, I mean, maybe some people can, but um, I, I have a yeah, I don't even. I, yeah. I'm very fortunate that I don't really uh, think of it in terms of, of that. I just know I need to get it, get it done, and uh, I'm always working on getting more effective and efficient with my time, especially now that there are more demands on it. Um, so I'm trying to get better at that. So I'm not running around like a crazy man all the time. Uh, not not so uh, that's not working out so well as of today, but I'm working on that for the future. So that's, uh, that's just how it goes though. Um, I've
1: started using this app called uh, dragon anywhere, I think. So it goes on your phone and it's a transcription app. Like I've tried using the notes on my phone and et cetera, but it'll time out. This one won't time out and it's pretty good. Like, you know, you just have to edit, but like I somehow thoughts come to me when I'm driving or if I'm at my son's t-ball practice or whatever. And I read somewhere that the average human speaks 10,000 words a day. Oh yeah. And so if you just sit there and like, if I just get a percentage of that, you know, it you're able to be productive in places that you wouldn't normally be productive. Because I think the the gold comes from that kind of stream of consciousness thought, as opposed to like, oh, I'm sitting here like trying to be writerly. Sometimes it doesn't the flow doesn't come out. But when you're just like, I gotta get this down. You go back, you look at it, man, that, that, it needs some polishing, but that's good. Oh,
0: nice, nice. I downloaded those apps. There was like a, a family of them, I think. There was like a few of them and it, they were each part of that dragon thing. And I was like, I want to say it was late 2018 and I, <laughs> I never used them. Um, so I, I need to, I send myself emails though. Like last night I was coming back from, from Montana and I pulled over and sent myself an email to an email that just has notes go to it. So I'll send ah, myself sorry. something. I'll pull over real quick and I'm like, okay, do, 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 boom, send it. Uh, so I find that's working out because I've tried the notes also on my phone and then I'm just like, where was that? Did I, what did I do? Did I, did I write it somewhere? Did I put it in a note that I now can't find? Or what the, is it in the cloud? Yeah, I've got an
1: old school voice recorder that I use a lot. And, yeah, uh, my wife got me one know, and I didn't end up using it. Doing, really. Yeah, it uh, takes a little time, like, you know, because you read it back and uh, you're like, oh, i to type in as fast as you can and you're to back it up. But it's really good for those situations where you always kind of know where it is. Yeah. And um, for me, that has helped because sometimes I only need that spark, you know, I get stuck and I just need a spark. And then it's like, Oh, here I am. You get these ideas. And um, I don't know, sometimes uh, sitting there at a computer or or typing something, I like to write longhand because I feel Mm. sometimes I think sitting in front of a computer, you have this uh, for me, it looks like a blank screen looks like a mirror. Uh, and so it's mirroring what I'm not doing. And oh, I'm like, great. Oh, God, Thanks for so telling
0: I'm me that. that. Now I'm going to think about it later this afternoon yeah. when I sit down to write. Dang it. Uh,
1: well, man. you know, nah, the just... cool thing is you can change that thought to be like, you know, it's all about your headspace, right? And this particular thing is like, oh, I got th- I don't feel like doing it. And, you, you know, you're just like, but I want to do it. And it's like, oh that changes things and kind of got <laughs> yeah. your perspective trick in your mind.
0: Yeah. No, I'm glad I sent myself those emails. Cause I'll look at them and be like, Oh geez, I totally forgot about that. Thank goodness. I sent that email. Cause now it's going in this book or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, it ends up working out pretty, pretty well. Got to, got to capture it somehow. But, uh, so when Tom Colgan calls you and says, do you want to do Ludlam? What is, what is that like?
1: I thought he was joking. Um, and I've told this story before I thought he was had like he had called the because I didn't know him. I thought like you know maybe he'd got a bunch of numbers and accidentally my number got thrown <laughs> into the pile. And so I'm like, "You're are you serious?" And, and uh, for those I listening, said, yeah, Tom yeah. Colgan
0: is a legendary editor of Mr. Tom Clancy.
1: That's right. And um, the funny story is right just prior to going to Bowshicon, I had um, I don't really know how this happened, but I was invited to Clive Custler's house. Um, he was, there was a possibility that I could step in and take over one of his series. Uh, and as I was literally flying over that negotiation between the, I think it was Boyd Morrison and him, they fixed it. Mm -hmm. So I land and it's like, nobody tells me that there's no book idea. So I'm just like hanging out with Clive Cussler.
0: Wow. In Arizona.
1: uh, Yeah. At his house for like three days. And, um, he was kind of getting older, um, got to hang out with his wife and, like he had this study back there. And so he's like, let's go talk. And we'd go into a study and it's got all his books everywhere. And it's got the models from like wow. Sahara and Raise Titanic. And like, I grew up, that was the guy, you know, yeah. i read, you know, I've read all the books, like Dirk Pitt, the 45, everything. That was, that was it for me. And I'm just sitting here like trying to be normal. Uh, That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So it was crazy. It turned out I didn't get the book, but I guess maybe that my name had gotten thrown into that. Like maybe it was some FOMO or whatever. So somehow my name got back to Tom Colgan. Cause I guess that penguin and then publish the same thing. And like you said, just being there, showing up, happen. He called me, I was, um said, yeah, I'd, I'd really love to try. So I wrote, I think it was like uh 25 page, like a little trial. Oh, wow. Like they gave me the idea Um Cause they had the born thing. And I thought that's what I was like, I'm a right born. Like, no, no, no. we got this other thing for you. It's called Treadstone. We don't know what it's going to be. Can you figure it out? And, uh, just kind of was able to build that. Yeah. Admitted it. They enjoyed it. Um, and then it's off to the races. Just, uh, that is awesome.
0: How many of those did you do?
1: Four. Four.
0: Man, that's pretty awesome. That is really yeah, cool a- to be associated with something so legendary,
1: you know? It's you know, it's still a little surreal yeah. uh, because you I like I grew up reading Robert Loveland books and um, you know he wasn't alive to talk to, so you're trying to like get in his headspace, but you're also trying to sell a more modern story. But it's it's like standing on the shoulders of giants. Like I really shouldn't be here, um, but it worked out well and uh, it was stressful, but I think it kind of pushed me to perform maybe punch a little higher than my weight. Nice. Nice.
0: And then how, so you do those four, are you writing some other stuff at the same time or are those, are you dedicated to those four while you're doing them?
1: Um, I wrote, I was dedicated to those three. And then on the fourth one, I wrote the guardian while I was writing uh treadstone. And so that's the first one with just my name on it in like four years. So. Nice. Nice. That is awesome. So
0: what, um, so, man, this is, this is awesome. This is so cool. that You got this coming out here. Um, June 27th. Is that the, is that the right date still? It is nice. Awesome. Very cool. Very. So where did this uh, idea come from? Cause it's a, uh, it's not an army guy, um, Air Force pararescue here. Um, how did you do that, that research and what made you want to uh, explore someone with that background?
1: Well, for me it, um towards the end of the Treadstone books, Um, I was writing the last one, you know, you had Afghanistan fall. And so for me, that was, that was really an end of an era, the end of the global war on terrorism. That's kind of been at the centerpiece of these military fiction books Mm -hmm. since it started. And um, at the same time you have, you know, you have so many people using seals, Delta guys, Marine guys, whatever. And for me, it was always like, how do you think outside of that? Like what, you know, and, and so, pjs i knew about them i didn't know as much as when i began to research but what fascinated me about the pj is that um instead of they have the capabilities to to work on special operations but they're not primarily direct action uh guys they're 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 like medics so they're to save people's lives and so the dichotomy of like having a guy that's trained to save people putting him in a position where he has to go kind of direct action was interesting i thought Like a new type of character, maybe.
0: Nice. And then how, so for writing this one, did you, uh, has your process changed over time or have you uh, stuck kind of with the same kind of process? Mine stayed the same uh, really for all these first six books. Um, uh, not not saying it won't change in the future, refined, maybe a tiny bit, but essentially it's the the same process of coming up with the title, coming up with a theme, writing a one page executive summary, and then asking myself, is this worth the next year of my life, uh, next year and a half of my life? And then, Hey, if someone else were to read this, like if they picked this book up and read the back of it right here or flipped open the, the heart cover and the, the inside jacket cover, uh, would they be willing to, or would they want to spend time in those pages, time they're never going to get back? And if the answer to that is yes, then, okay, I got two yeses right there. Bam, I take that one page executive summary, turn that into the outline, and then turn that outline into the narrative, but, um, and it's, that's been the, the way it has been since the beginning. Only difference in the beginning was I had like six, seven, eight, nine different executive summaries and chose how to choose which one to start with. Um, but, uh, how has your process, uh, evolved over time for, for this book?
1: Well, it, unfortunately I wasn't near as organized as you were. <laughs> like, I think I am, I was more of an organic writer, which some people will call a pantser. And, yep.
0: um,
1: yeah. So So you're right by your seat of your
0: pants if people are wondering what that means.
1: And it's a terrible idea. Um, (laughs) I I say that to say that you have to have, I'm learning now, you have to have order, you have to have structure if you're going to have any career in this. Because with time being of an essence and your family, et cetera, uh, the issues I would get within deadlines is, you know, I would find the story as I'm writing the story, but oftentimes like I would find this story about, 100 pages in and that means those 100 pages wow. they don't work wow or maybe it was 50 and you can only what you're doing in essence when you're writing being a pantser or organic is you're creating an outline in your first draft you're just doing it the least efficient way possible <laughs> you know you're writing a book that doesn't work that doesn't work and so like you said sitting back and taking a structured approach to do with the guardian. And I've started to do now is uh, I used to think that, well, if you outline it and you know, everything that's going to happen, um, you know, you're kind of boxed in, but no, you're just what you're doing is you're looking at a map before you get in a car and drive across the United States. Like, what is the most efficient route? Okay. I don't want to go there because of this. Mm. So I've begun to do that. And one thing that's uh, kind of developed at a necessity was these ideas of, um, micro chapters that's what i call them mm-hmm. um where you're writing and like i would find the difference between an outline and actually writing the book isn't in these big ideas it's in like these little minutiae these crossing over points where mm-hmm. you're like okay i got him in africa and i want him to go to asia and he's going to do this he's going to meet this guy and kick this dude's butt and you're like okay how's he get there mm-hmm. those have been the parts that i kind of that not stop you and you're like, okay, I got to figure this out. So then you start going into this deep research thing. And so I developed these little micro chapters that I kind of used before between the outline process and the writing process where I'll go ahead and allow myself a week or two weeks to do the research. Like, okay, I know he's got to go from here to here, how we he do that. These are some options. These are the ways, you know, and I have those kind of like just sitting mm. in the back of my mind. And now I'm able to, move forward in a linear process. Cause I would always have trouble if I left a big hole behind me, I, my brain wouldn't let me get past that. I'm mm. like, well, what about chapter two? Uh, you got this thing you haven't finished and it's like, you know, neating up your line, I think is the way uh, I think of it.
0: Interesting. Yeah, so in the outline portion, I don't get uh, bogged down on that. Cause I know- that I'm not solving this problem on the battlefield uh, where I have to do it in seconds. I am doing it on the page and I have a year and a half to do this and I'm gonna be able to fill that gap in. I know there's something I need to put in chapter two um, and I don't quite have it yet or I haven't quite figured out how I'm gonna have him or have an antagonist or something do a get to a certain point or make a certain action or not get caught or get caught or whatever it might be. Um, But guess what I know over the next year, I'm going to figure that out and I'm be able to come back and it's going to come to me. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, so don't worry about that. I just put a bunch of X's in there and I'm um, like, leave it as okay. I'm coming back to this. I know I need to figure this out, but, uh, the other things like that theme and that title and those other things that I've already, that aren't taking up bandwidth. Cause I have them figured out ahead of time, um, leaves bandwidth for me to be like, okay, I'm going to, this is as I write this. I'm going to figure this chapter two out. I know something's going to go there. I just don't know quite yet, but I'm not going to stay there on chapter two for a month going, I know I got to fix this. I got to fix this. I got to think of something. I know I need to spend that month working and, uh, and moving that ball forward. So, um, but yeah, I think it's always going to be the case. There's going to be things and you're going to figure out there's going to be gaps as you're writing and you're gonna have to come back and gaps you didn't even know. They're like, there are not any X's in this outline that I have to come back to. But now that I'm on chapter 68, Oh, okay. I need to go set that up with something over here in chapter 17 or chapter 28 or whatever it might be. Um, and then just fill those in as I go to make that thing as, uh, as smooth as possible. So, um, yeah, I love it. And I love every part of the, part of the process. You ever
1: get stuck at all? Like you're, you know, we've talked a little bit about this before you're disciplined in a way, like you told me once you might not remember that because of Your upbringing and some of your hiking and things that you had done before joining the Navy, you had the discipline required to become a SEAL before you became a SEAL, which I think blew me away then and is still a rarity.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's putting yourself in these positions of adversity, particularly ones where there's no one there to cheer you on. Like if you're boxing, which I did, or doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu early on really before most people knew what it was in the early nineties. Um, and you're doing those tests where they're sending fresh guys in and then after two minutes or three minutes or whatever it was, they'd circle back, get at the back of the line to rest up while you keep going. Like those types of things are awesome. And I thought back to those a lot, but, uh, guess what? There are people around you that are keeping you from quitting just because you don't want to quit in front of them. Um, if you do something solo, Like you're kayaking or you're uh, doing cross country or whatever else. There's no one there that's going to know, like on this hill, you're training by, by yourself and you're running hills and you're sprinting hills. Guess what? You're halfway up that hill. There's nobody around. You can look around and you can stop and walk and no one will ever know. But you will. And so I think those ones even more so. Maybe the, I think they complement one another. The boxing and the jujitsu, then were complemented by the solo things that I really like doing because I like to be by myself. That's why I, I think that's one of the things is I uh, was appealing as a kid uh, as far as being a writer. Uh, you're by yourself. It's just you and that mm-hmm. keyboard. Um, but doing those things like running those hills, sprinting those hills, doing those cross country long runs, where you can stop. Uh, it's you training by yourself on a weekend, not with the team and you can stop, but you don't. So I think those things, the, uh, kind of the more boxing stuff where there's people yelling at you and there's jiu the jujitsu or the people watching you, uh, and then the stuff where there's nobody watching you and you get to decide if you're going to stop or not. Uh, I think those things complement each other and, and certainly, certainly helped in buds. That's for sure. And in life in general, probably.
1: And especially I'd imagine when you are alone writing is like, you seem to almost take this, you know, have this ability to turn what i assume would be a writer's block which is like excuse right that's an excuse like if you're able to power through that like it's uh it's very interesting thing I, you telling me that i thought of that was actually used it on one of the treadstone books to oh, get nice. through where it was like you know i've done these difficult things right now i'm just sitting here typing away like what is holding me back and you you begin to realize that Sometimes it can be discipline and not pushing yourself um, on something as simple as this. And uh, it was very helpful and interesting.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Uh, And I also was lucky in that I heard Stephen. Pressfield talking about writer's block before I started writing, like right around the time I started the first book. Um, and he was on Rogan um early on. He's been on a couple of times now. But for those listening, he wrote Legend of Bagger Vance, Gates of Fire, Afghan Campaign, and he also writes a series of books on creativity. Uh, the War of Art is the first one, and then there's the authentic swing, turning pro, do the work. But in his interview with Rogan, I think it was, um, he said, Hey, you never heard of a trucker getting truckers block, you never heard of a dentist getting dentist block. You say you're a writer, you're a professional, you sit down, you write. And uh, hearing that early on was like very liberating. Um, because I was like, "Yeah, that's what I am now. I'm not a special operator anymore. That's part of my foundation, part of my past, but now I'm a professional writer. I'm a professional author. Uh, flip that switch. I sit down and now I write. And so, yeah, I haven't, uh, haven't had to deal with, with writer's block just because of Stephen Stephen Pressfield saying those words early on. So I don't even consider it. I just sit down and do the work.
1: That's interesting because, uh, you, you don't realize the things that you get into your your brain your subconscious that you you feel or are told that you should expect to happen you know you hear a lot of talk about like you know people in buds i've known some seals and they talk about you know the fear of the unknown is bad but it's not as bad as knowing specifically that x or y is going to happen you know uh they they talk a lot about you know being in the pool and doing the shallow water blackouts and Mm. You know, you knowing that's going to happen, you haven't even experienced it yet. You you can begin. And a lot of people do, uh, you know, when I've missed a deadline, I I think to myself improperly, I'm going to miss the next one. Right. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if you don't know to fear that, if you don't know that that's happened um, and and that kind of goes back to listening to other people, if you stay on your course, like you can oftentimes avoid. Problems that really don't exist or problems that you create in your own head.
0: Yeah, I've kind of wondered that nowadays where you can jump online and probably find out everything that happens during BUDS almost hour by hour. Back um, back when I went through, you didn't know. You knew there was this thing called Hell Week that was coming up in a certain number of weeks. I think it was the fourth weekend uh, when I did it. Uh, and you know that's coming. You know you have second phase if you pass first phase and make it through Hell Week. And you know that this pool comp thing is coming where a lot of people also wash out. And then in third phase, you know that, hey, this land nav thing is coming. And then you'll have to do some things with explosives uh, or uh, make sure you're safe with explosives and understand what to do with those um so you know those things are coming um but you don't know like the hour by hour type of a breakdown um and i wonder oftentimes was it better not to know and i think it was but i don't know it probably varies person by person some people probably were like oh man it's it's the second week of hell week i know what's coming up tonight because i've studied it or whatever so i saw i read it online oh man i have four more hours till that happens and then I have to do that for another three hours or whatever it is. I um, oh man, I can't do that. I'm going to ring the bell now. I, just, I know I'm not going to make it through that because I know it's coming. I know how horrible it's going to be. And I know a lot of people quit there, so I'm just going to go ring this bell now. So maybe, I don't know. So it probably depends on the person or someone could be like, Oh, I know exactly what's going to happen. All I need to do is make it through this, get to this thing tonight. And then, yeah, it's going to be awful, but people have made it before me. But, uh, you know, most people don't die doing it. So I'm not going to either. And I'm going to make it through the other side. So I don't know. It probably depends on the, the person, their mentality or just how they frame it. I don't know. But, uh, but I think for when we went through, you know, there wasn't an option, so it didn't matter. But uh, there's a lot of lot of unknowns in uh, in buds back then. I guess not so not so much anymore. But uh, oh, well, for those listening about deadlines, uh, they should probably make their deadlines. Like, don't listen to me about deadlines. I I, I, I like my soft deadlines, but uh, hard deadlines are probably much better <laughs> for everyone. Yeah, well, you, uh,
1: you've <laughs> earned the right to have <laughs> soft deadlines when you come in. Like you know, and still for a lot of authors, it's like you know. There is a little bit of leeway, but you know, deadlines, you know, I've begin I've restructured my thinking with deadlines. I've started to tell myself that pressure is a privilege because it means, you know, they expect something from me. So instead of it being a negative, I try to look at it as like, oh, well, like let's let's see if we can make this or and then it changed to, I will make this. Nice. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh you know, writers not as glamorous as you first imagine, I would think you'd agree with that, you know, and yeah, I don't uh, know. I didn't really a lot think about that part of it, I guess.
0: Yeah, I didn't really think about that part of it. I thought about the part I mentioned earlier about being in the cabin on my own writing, sending it in. So I did think about that and then very quickly realized in the lead up to the first book that that was not going to be the case anymore. Um, and so that hasn't been, but I didn't really have expectations about anything as far as like glamour goes. I just, uh,
1: I meant like for me, that is a glamorous lifestyle to be able to like sit there and write. No one's bothering gotcha. you. There's no expectations. Yeah. It's just like, hey, we we really liked your last book. Give us another one of those when you feel like it. Like I, I honestly <laughs> thought that's what it was like. Yeah, and, was A little more, uh, this, uh, little more pressure than that. A little more pressure than that. Yeah. You know, they say you have forever to write your first book and then yeah. only 12 months to write your second and everyone after that. And it's that's uh, it.
0: Yeah. It no, does
1: take a discipline.
0: Yeah. No deadline on that first one. You've got to get it as good as you can possibly get it before you show it to, to anybody or show it to that agent. Um, so what are you doing now? Are you writing a, is there another one or what's, what's, what's next?
1: Well, um, so I'd signed a two book deal with uh, Blackstone and I'd made, it was kind of a miscommunication. They're asking, what are you going to do next? And they used um, a word like standalone. And what they were talking about was like, the next in the series of the guardian that mm. you would have to necessarily read the first one well i miss uh you know oh, interesting understood what they were saying yeah. and i was like so you want a different book and they're like wait would that be possible and i was like I, I don't know so i it was kind of a lucky break but uh i was like okay here's what i'll do i'll write a synopsis for the next guardian then i'll write a synopsis for something totally different i'd always wanted to write a book about a smoke jumper. So I come up with this idea about a smoke jumper. um, And then i would learned, you know, I'm trying to get in this space to create different types of heroes. So I was like, well, how would a, a smoke jumper have skill sets outside of smoke jumping? And it's like, what if he's a criminal? I was like, that could never happen. And I did some research and found out that in California, if you go to jail, uh, for a certain, I think, minor offenses, you could go through this fire program. Yeah. You, and if you pass, you become a certified smoke jumper oh, and wow. then, or a certified wildland firefighter yeah. and they expunge your record. And I was like, that'd be kind of cool to have a smoke jumper, but he's maybe hiding his past, you know? So that's what I'm working on now. It's called burnout. And then nice. hopefully that's
0: a great title for that. It. Yeah, that's oh, fantastic. What, yeah. um, that's that's oh man, that's awesome. So, that is a that's a what I would think of as a standalone. If someone was to tell me to write yeah. a standalone, I would, I would think that that's the same what I assume, but
1: they had both and they're like, oh, well, this looks really interesting, but we really just meant uh, the next book that happens. So, you don't have to actually read the first book to understand what's going on. And so, kind of stepped into that one, but it worked out pretty well because I'm really excited and enjoying writing this book that's way outside of my comfort zone.
0: Nice. That is awesome. Congratulations. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, when am I going to see you next? Am I see you at Thriller Fest or no?
1: I don't think... I'm gonna uh, I i do not think I'll make thriller fest. We have uh baseball stuff, but I'm definitely gonna come to uh Bauschakon.
0: Nice, uh, Nice.
1: Can't pass up an opportunity to go to San Diego here. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a, it's a good spot. But uh yeah, man, awesome. Fire it up. And this one is June 27th coming, available for pre-order right now, or depending on when you're listening to this, if it's after June 27th, 2023, it's already out there. So um awesome, man. Awesome. Great talking to you. That's my favorite part about doing the podcast, is that get to sit down, turn off the phone, not look at the computer and just catch up with a friend for a little bit. So that's, uh, that's my favorite part about doing this. So uh, congratulations on everything and man, I'll see you soon.
1: Appreciate it. Take it easy and keep up the good work.
0: Take care. Black Raffle Coffee Company. You can help Black Raffle Coffee raise $1 million to benefit veterans through the boot campaign. All you need to do is grab a can of ready to drink coffee online or from your local grocery or convenience store. The Boot Campaign is one of the most renowned veteran-focused nonprofits in the country, working tirelessly to provide life-changing aid and benefits to service members and their families. Join forces with Black Rifle in the Boot Campaign from May through the end of the year, where every can of ready-to-drink coffee you buy will contribute to making this massive donation possible. Black Rifle Ready to Drink Coffee is available in several great tasting flavors on the Black Rifle Coffee website at your local convenience or grocery store. And no matter where you are, you can fuel your caffeine fix while supporting veterans. Every time you crack open a can of Ready to Drink, you'll be making a huge difference in the lives of veterans and their families. Black Rifle Coffee is committed to serving the veteran community. And with your help, we can all continue to make a difference. Let's raise a can together to keep fueling Americans for a good cause. Check out BlackRifleCoffee.com slash DangerClose and use code DangerClose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash DangerClose. Drink up. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, right here, Rusty Furman. This is his book, Go, Go, Go. And he was a team leader for the Iranian embassy siege in 1980 at Prince's Gate in London. He was on the podcast not long ago, and he sent me this book signed. So, Rusty, thank you so much. And on the podcast, we talked about this picture right here, and he sent me this signed as well. And there is Rusty right there making entrance uh, on the Iranian embassy in 1980. MP5 right there, HK, and and the man with no gloves. He was not wearing his gloves that day and became known as the man with no gloves. So Rusty, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for this. I'm going to frame it and find a great spot for it. That really means a lot to me. So thank you. And what else? Schnee's boots right here. I love Schnee's. If you've been following me for a while, uh, you know that. And I've been wearing them for over a decade now. Probably got my first pair, I think, in 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. But uh, these right here are the Montana two's and these are the ones that I slip on day to day around here in the mud in the snow in the slush out here so I just find myself slipping into these more often than not when it gets deep I go with the higher version but uh, these ones right here the lower top version just easy to get the kids in and out of the car and run around town in and I wear these I have worn these for the last two winters uh quite a bit so love these check them out uh schnees.com and they will bunch of great boots up there and a bunch of other things. And if you're passing through Bozeman, like I did the other day, stop by and check out their store. It is awesome. I hadn't been up there before and absolutely loved it. I will be back. Uh, Check out all their stuff. And Sig right here. This is the X5P226. And this thing, (whistles) solid. Look at that thing. Oh, yeah. So, this, that is nice. I like a heavy pistol. I like a light rifle, but a heavy pistol. And this thing right here, awesome. So check that out. P226X5. Nice. And website, officialjackcar.com. Go to the upper right-hand corner for the merch. There's a bunch of new stuff on there that you can check out. And this workbench right here. Badass-workbench. dash This thing is solid. Love it. So... Check them out and follow them on the socials as well. And Triple Ott, this shirt that I'm wearing right here, um, I'm going to get a few more because this thing is awesome. Triple Ott, you can check them out. Just type that into the search engine and they have a bunch of really cool stuff out there. So thank you, Triple Ott, and I'll see you next time. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironcloud original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Only the Dead, my latest novel, is on shelves right now. To find out more about Josh Hood, go to his website, joshuahoodbooks.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-H-O-O-D, books.com. Follow him on the social channels from there, and be sure to pick up a copy of The Guardian, which is on shelves right now. Follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, Officialjackcar.com. That is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.